am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. We're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Welcome to Election Shock Therapy. I'm Chris Moore here at Bethel University. And joining me in my office today are the, all of the usual suspects. We have Mitchell Crum, Andrew Bramson, and Sam Mulberry. For a limited time only. <laughs> what, why is that, Sam? Uh, I have a meeting. You have a meeting? Yeah. Again? That's weird. Why would that happen? Um, how tired are you, Sam? I'm pretty tired. Yeah. Uh, last night, um, I told my uh, 11-year-old son he really wanted to stay up for the game. And I thought, well, this was going to go to like maybe 10, 10.30. He could probably do that on a school night. <laughs> mm-hmm. But once you commit, once you tell an 11-year-old they can stay up, like, yep. You're there for the long haul. So, he, so that may be one of the latest he's ever stayed up, and he loved every minute of it. So, so if you're listening to this um, weeks after we recorded it or something and you've lost track of time. Why would you? Like after the election, you're like, oh, I want to catch up on some election podcast. Binge watching, man. Binge listening. That's true. <laughs> Procrastinating on something else. You That's know. right. Um, if you're listening to this, uh, the Cubs won the World Series last night. They defeated the Cleveland Indians in extra innings um, after a rain delay, after Jesus returned, possibly. Uh, th- um, this was uh, this was quite the uh, quite the climactic end to a 108 year old drought. So um, we have a, we have a headline here from uh, from 538.com uh, just prior to the game. Uh, and well, that was a part of the game. This is this was when the Cubs were down three. Yeah, down it was last three, week. Oh, okay, okay. So this was this was a couple of games ago. The Indians had jumped out to a three-one lead, and five thirty-eight, um, which is a a news and data uh, website. Uh, deals with data sports. journalism is data, what they data like to journalism. Call. There we go. <laughs> um, they said the Cubs have a smaller chance of winning than Trump does. And Andy, you thought this was a confusing headline. Oh, just because I mean, it's you know, I would I would get on to my students for writing a headline like that. Um, just because you should say, you know, the Cubs have a smaller champ- chance of winning the World Series than Trump does of winning the presidency. So, so you're, the Cubs so always had a better chance confused of winning the that Trump World was going to win the World Series. It's just or that a, Ben Zobrist it's just was going to be poorly president. So. Yeah. <laughs> Which of those things? Which I mean? actually had friends advocating for the Ben Zobrist for president last <laughs> night on Facebook, but but yeah. not but not Trump in the World Series. What position would Trump play in a, on a World Series winning baseball team? Uh, designated hitter. I mean, he's a DH. He, hits, he hits hard. I think he's a first baseman. So. Like an immobile first baseman. Yeah, like, like a Jim Tomei kind of thing. Yeah, like, like a defensive liability first baseman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yep. But, okay. but, but, but with, with, with like a high slugging percentage. I mean, I could also see him. Yeah. yeah. I'm not sure. Not a lot of plate discipline, though. So, no. So, the, so no. low on base, high slugging. I, I yeah. can see that. Yeah, he, yeah, just, yeah. he just swings at them all. Yeah. yeah. It's just when he connects. So, so we're thinking of um, like a, a Rob Deere type, maybe? Although he didn't play first. Or Dave Kingman? Yeah, there we go. Okay. He could also, I mean, as a as a longtime Braves fan, I could also see him as a John Rocker style closer. Um, so John Rocker was our closer around 2000, and you, when they would summon him from the bullpen, Gee, I can't imagine what the connection is between John. Well, Rocker yeah, there and Donald are some Trump. other connections that make me think of that. But John Rocker would come charging out of the bullpen. It was like releasing a bull. They would w- open the door, and he would come like running in, and then he would just kind of start throwing that ball. And sometimes he was great, and sometimes he was just wild. I mean, just you just <laughs> never kind of knew. I mean, he could be amazing, and he could be all over the place. So. Um, yeah, that's another possibility. What's Hillary Clinton doing on a World Series winning baseball team? 
It's a bad idea. <laughs> she, she, what, you say she's stealing signs from the other team? <laughs> she's stealing signs. That's right. She's that guy in the dugout who's trying to figure out what the other team's signs are. Yeah, um, I mean, or, or or the the other. I mean, the other option would be sort of a a Gaylord Perry type. You know, somebody <laughs> who kind of walks the lines of like you know the the rules of the game mm-hmm. in terms of doctoring yeah. baseball L- stuff. A little bit like of ta- that. little bit of pine tar. A little bit right, of, right. Yeah. But but at the same time, the at the same time, people like that. You know, claim like, well, that's just, that's just part of the game, sort of like that's, that's right. just politics, that's right? right? That's like, right. like, there's, and Gaylord Perry's in the Hall of Fame, so it's right. like, yeah. you know, like that, I think that's yeah. a, that, that would, I think that'd be my pick, yeah. I think, I, I think she just always bunts. She just comes up. She always just plays it safe. She just, wants to, she just always just takes it down, just taps it, and then you know, just takes first. That's all she needs. Yep. Never needs to hit it out of the park. You know, mm-hmm. that's all. Mm-hmm. Just, just trust the other team will be bad enough that they can. She can right. kind of, just yeah. Wait <laughs> they, you know, everybody, yeah, everybody can just kind of safely walk the bases and. I like where we're going with these analogies, guys. <laughs> okay, one more thing uh, as we as we as we wind up our our you know political science comedy routine here. Uh, how would how would a uh, a future uh, President Clinton uh, congratulate the Cubs on erasing their 108 year World Series drought? Uh, I think she might uh, look at the look at the Cubs and basically say, you know, she's all about equality, and she would say, you know, I'm really glad to see that such a deplorable team has finally uh, risen <laughs> to the you know to such a high level, and that this is the American dream. You know, right. He's good. That's yeah. I'm, I think uh, I think Donald Trump would say, you know, I would prefer to root for the kind of team that doesn't take 108 years to win the World Series. I think that would be sort of his, his mm-hmm. you know, his uh, backhanded insult at the Cubs. Maybe mm-hmm. I'm from New York. We've won a lot more. He's, he's, We're he's, winners. He's, Chicago's do we know kind of Yankees losers. fan? Is he a Mets fan? Do we know? You know, that's a good that's question. A good qu- I would. I just would assume Yankees fan, but I don't. I, but he feels like he should be a Yankees fan. Yeah, for sure. But. <laughs> I don't know that for We're saying time. that as, as Twins fans. Yeah. <laughs> you should be a Yankees fan. Well, yeah. I mean, he just seems like You're the, a Braves fan. I should be clear. Yeah, I'm a Braves fan. I'm not a Twins fan. But um, although I, I'll root for the Twins when they're not playing the Braves. I mean, so it was a rough year this year between the Twins and the Braves. Yeah. Worst two records in baseball? No, Braves only ended up fifth worst. The Twins okay. were... Twins though, were decidedly the worst team They were the only baseball. team that lost more than 100 games. Yeah. <sighs> yeah, they were bad. rough. All right, guys. Well, let's let's steer off of baseball as much fun as that is. Let's talk a little <laughs> bit about the political season. Uh, this is our last podcast before election day. Mm-hmm. We think, um, unless there's an emergency, unless there's an emergency of some kind, <laughs> the polls have gotten tighter. Um, RCP average has us down. Has uh, Clinton's lead uh, down to a one point seven point lead mm-hmm. yep. uh, on average. And uh, 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 538 Politics has heard a 65% chance uh, to win the presidency, uh, all the way down from an 85% chance uh, right. maybe Pretty t- recently, t- t- yeah. 10 days ago. Yeah, about. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Even last week, I think she was still up over 80. Yeah. So, yeah. So um, she's declined dramatically. The, I guess there, if you're looking for good news on the, from, from the Hillary Clinton side of things, her lead continues to hold in the states that she needs to win to win the presidency. Mm-hmm. Um, so she maintains leads in places like Pennsylvania and Virginia and New Hampshire and Colorado. If she wins even one more kind of titchy state like Nevada, um, it's pretty impossible for Trump to win the presidency, even if he wins places like Ohio and Florida and North Carolina. Right. He could lose all. I mean, he could win all those states and still lose. I mean, the thing for her is that her margin of error has shrunk and kind of almost disappeared. Right. Because, you know, a few days ago, she was like when you looked at the no no toss up map on RCP, which is sort of tells you which way every state is leaning. She was easily over 300 electoral votes. And um, as of last night, I haven't checked this morning, but last night she was at 273. 
right? Which mm-hmm. means she's got enough still, but he's at 265 and then no toss-ups, right? I mean, so that's, mm-hmm. um, you know, that, that basically means he takes one of her states and he would be president. Um, it's, it's hard to see which one of those he steals. I think they're all somewhat heavy lifts for him. But at the same time, you know, if you're the Trump campaign, this look is looking a lot better now than it was a week ago. Mm-hmm. So how, they, how, they still have, uh, just right as of this morning, they still have a 273, 265 with no okay. toss-ups. Yep. How how late are we in 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 terms of elections for one last shoe to drop on something? I mean, are we are we past that point for that to have an impact, or when does when does that cease to be meaningful? Uh, I think there I think there's sort of two things to to think about. So first of all, um, one of the one of the things you know we talk about states getting closer and t- the race tightening and things like that. But one thing to keep in mind is that most people don't actually switch their views. Most mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. had decided you know a year ago, based almost you know who right. they were going to vote for, right. and that hasn't changed. I mean, for most people, um, you know they basically they vote their party ID or yep. they vote um, based on other you know characteristics that are already very much set. You know, maybe an issue, maybe. Um, you know, maybe 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 a demographic, things like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, so 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 when we look at this, you know, when you think about like one more shoe dropping, you're really talking about a very slim set of voters. And that's why, right. you know, when we when we sit here and we talk about all the races tightening and things like that, one of the things mm-hmm. to keep in mind is, you know, this is why Andy, I think, says this is a pretty heavy lift for, for Trump to change one of these states mm-hmm. is because they're really even in states that are close, there's not that many voters that could be convinced or that might switch even if something drastic happened. Mm-hmm. I, I agree with that, although what I would, would say is that it could matter, again, if you if you get voters who are unenthused and actually don't go out the polls. So, I mean, if one base or the other becomes more enthused, that's not about changing who, who you would vote for. It's just saying, do the Hillary Clinton voters turn out in as big a numbers as the Donald Trump voters or vice versa? Um, and there's, I mean, there's two things here that I, I feel like I'm, I'm kind of keeping an eye on that I'm... They're the questions I don't feel like I can know an answer to until after Election Day. One is, how much does Hillary Clinton's superior organization matter? I think she's got a much better on-the-ground organization, which traditionally means she should turn out votes better on Election Day. Um, if that's the case, she could outperform her polls. On the other hand, mm-hmm. um, Donald Trump uh, you know, and supporters claim that people the polls are underestimating his support because some people are – you know. Intimidated, they don't want to tell um, pollsters, you know, that they're voting for Trump because he's viewed as a sort of less acceptable option. Um, so, are the polls underestimating what the votes are for him? And that's—I don't see any sort of statistical evidence to suggest that's the case at this point. But it's not, also not impossible. I mean, it's—it's it's plausible as an argument. So, those are the two sort of unknowns in this in this equation as well. True. True. Well, one of the uh, things I think we want that we want to explore today is as, as we're approaching the end of this very long uh, presidential electoral season. Mitch uh, asked me in the hallway the other day. He said, do, "Do we really know what we mean when we say what a campaign is?" And I said, "That sounds like a question that we should talk about on the podcast." So I'm going to throw this over to Mitch now and um, kind of ask him to begin to lay out this idea of, as a philosopher, what do we mean when we say what, what's a campaign? What 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 are we what have, what this whole thing that has been. Um, dominating the political landscape and dominating our lives for the last uh, uh, for the last uh, year or so. What is this thing? What is a campaign? Yeah. So one of the things I think you know when we when we say the word political campaign, a lot of times I think people sort of have these 
um, you know, sort of conspiratorial visions almost. <laughs> like that somehow, you know, they're, you know, people, people in these organizations are somehow uh, gaming all this stuff and, you know, making weird things happen or making deals. And, and usually mm. that's really not the case. You know, what I, uh, one of the things that I think, you know, when we, when we look at campaigns, we should think um, much more uh, in, in mundane terms. I mean, basically there's like mm. three basic things that go into a campaign. There's mm. money and fundraising. Sure. Um, and so, you know, so there's a lot of trying to do that. Um, there's messaging. So mm-hmm. a lot of what a campaign is all about is trying to figure out the spin and how can you, you know, what, what issues you're going to talk about, what are you going to focus on, things like that. Um, and then, and then the other thing that you're thinking about when you're when you're when you're looking at a campaign is just how do you get people out to vote? I mean, it's just trying to organize, um, you know, people people to actually go, you know, and get and get out on the ground. What you know, mm-hmm. Andrew's already talking about with the ground game. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you think about that, when you when you think about that as um, as as a campaign, I think one of the things that immediately, you know, first of all, it's it's not it's not particularly glamorous. I mean, when you <laughs> when you right. when you start to think about what a campaign actually is, um, but it also kind of raises the questions of, of what do we what do we think a campaign should be? What should we be focused on when we okay. look at our political campaigns? Mm-hmm. Um, should you be focused on you know who's who's raising the most money? You know, what does that you know what does that mean? Should you be focused on who is you know what kind of messages and who's able to give the best messages for their campaign? Mm-hmm. Um, or or, or, you know, as Andy said, should you, be, should you be focused on who's setting up an organization to actually get people out to vote? Because, you know, when you boil it down, a campaign really is just about getting people to the polls. Mm-hmm, <laughs> I sure, mean, that's yeah. the end game mm-hmm. is you're trying right. to get people to the polls and how can you do that? So one of the things, you know, as I've been watching these campaigns and thinking about, you know, one of the things that Trump has really challenged, I think, and, and raised for us is mm-hmm. what does a campaign look like? What is, what is messaging <laughs> yeah. supposed to look yeah. like? Mm-hmm. You know, because if you go back and you look at previous campaigns, I mean, you think about a campaign like George W. Bush, or you think about, I mean, Mitt Romney or President Obama or whoever you want to fill right. a blank with, you know, you go back and they all have very carefully crafted messages, for sure. very careful organizations, and, you know, and they all have are very focused on fundraising. And Trump mm-hmm. really isn't doing any of those things. Right. You know, Trump isn't, he isn't, he hasn't been raising huge amounts of money, um, mm-hmm. and and, and uh, he hasn't been very carefully crafting most of his messages. I mean, he has some focus groups. I mean, he kind of right. knows what will play well, but and he also hasn't been very focused on on setting up a ground game. And so, you know, I think in some ways, mm-hmm. um, one of the things that, that this election has really brought to light is you know for us to kind of question what what is the political campaign and what does it look mm-hmm. like in the future, and how much mm-hmm. and how much does it matter, right? I mean, how much difference does good campaign organization make? I mean, if if we get to election day uh, and Hillary Clinton wins by a larger than expected margin, and it turns out that it's because of this, you know, getting people to the polls, then it would suggest that you know campaign organization, as we've understood it, um, still is really important. On the other hand, if we get there and Trump wins, or if it ends up being a virtual tie and whoever wins in the electoral college, uh, I think it's going to have to make us reconsider that conventional wisdom a bit. Um, that you know. Are, are, is campaign organization really a big factor, or is it really all about the fundamentals in the country? I mean, the fundamentals, and by the fundamentals, we mean how the economy is doing, um, you know, what people think of the current president. Um, the fundamentals slightly favor the Republicans this year. Not a sure. lot. Um, the economy is growing, but it's not strong, particularly, and certainly in terms of average, you know, wages of people. They're not feeling great, but they're not feeling terrible either. People like President Obama, okay, but he's not, he doesn't have sort of stellar ratings. He's right around 50%. So all those, I mean, when you run those numbers, right, the way that, um, you know, different people run them, they would say it slightly leans Republican. And so a generic Republican should ge- be a generic Democrat. Of course, we don't have either of those. We have Trump and Clinton are both we're much not, more not negatively viewed, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, so that makes it complicated. But if, if Trump were to win a narrow victory, I mean, one of the arguments would be, well, this is just about fundamentals. People ended up deciding to basically vote as if 
um, Trump and Clinton were, in fact, a generic Republican and a generic Democrat, I, even though that's not really um, the case. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting to sort of see, you know, how much does the campaign really matter? Is it does Trump's sort of lack of organization and lack of message discipline, um, does it actually not come back to harm him? So at the, at the, um, Andy's pointing to the fact that there are different schools of thought. Um, in American electoral politics about what mm-hmm. really matters in voters' right. minds, what really drives voters in terms of decision-making. And there are some school, some scholars who think that this is really just all about exogenous factors, mm-hmm. the strength of the economy, uh, rising and falling unemployment rates, mm-hmm. um, the presence or absence of foreign wars, the presence or absence of um, uh, gr- uh, growth or decline in the stock market, mm-hmm. um, and various right. other kinds of factors. And if we, we can just ignore whoever's running, Right. And we can simply say, like, based on these factors, we'll vote for the incumbent party, the party who's currently in the White House, or we'll vote for the, mm-hmm. the opposition party. Right. And by those factors, most people would suggest that this is a year that Republicans have, a, have an advantage, right. that a Republican should win this election. But Andy's also right that this, these are not generic candidates. We don't, you know, they're not just, you know, blank-faced, uh, mm-hmm. blank-faced suit-wearing uh, candidates. They're, they're Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, and that, and right. that plays a role, too. And so I... I kind of am agreeing with with Mitch here that I think he's right that things like money and support and ideas are some of the main components of a successful campaign. And I do think that campaigns matter. And I think that we have some good scholarship to support that idea, too, and something that extends well beyond American electoral Mm -hmm. politics, Mm -hmm. for that matter. Well, and the other thing we should add in here, too, is like, I mean, I guess I should – Maybe qualify what I said a little bit in the sense that I think Hillary Clinton, on the one hand, has run a good campaign. She's got a classic sort of campaign organization. She's got people to get out, get people out to the polls. On the other hand, compared to President Obama, right, this has not been a good campaign for her. I mean, she's got that organization there, but in terms of sort of their their handling of the media, um, their handling of sort of just information flows, right? I mean, they have not done a very good job. I mean, she went nine months without a press conference, right, which is just really pretty abysmal. Um, the pneumonia sort of news release was utterly botched, right? I mean, like, there was just a, uh, it was a very bad moment that basically um, ended up with her feeding a narrative that the Trump campaign had um, sort of put out there, um, probably just sort of thrown up against the wall, hoping for something, and she fed it, right? I mean, through her sort of really poor handling of when she released that information and how they released that information. Um, so, you know, they, they have not, I mean, you know, they have not run a stellar campaign, right? They've done a lot of the sort of the basic, the fundraising, the building the infrastructure. But in terms of the messaging compared to Obama's campaign, this has been um, kind of Bush League, honestly. Um, and not George Bush, but, you know, that's another baseball <laughs> I understand. Um, I have heard a narrative about the Obama administration going back to the 2008 election that he ran a very, very good ground game. Mm-hmm. He ran that um, his organization at, 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 a, at, a, at, a, at a retail politics level was very effective and was superior to John McCain in 2008, was superior to Mitt Romney in 2012. Hillary Clinton is seen to have a superior organizational mm-hmm. capacity to Donald Trump in, in 2016. I think we'd have to go back to 2004 and George W. Bush to see <clears throat> comparable ground games between John Kerry and George W. Bush. I'd Is slightly disagree. I mean, okay. I think I think Romney's um, Romney's ground game might not have been quite as strong in 2012, but there is a very strong argument out there that I kind of buy that you know that wasn't really the deciding factor, right? I mean, like when you um, I just taught a book called The Gamble by a couple of scholars by the names of Sides and Vavrick, and I mean they argue that they they think that the the sort of the organization of the campaigns was kind of a wash in 2012. Mm, okay, um, that Romney did have a pretty good campaign organization. 
and that what it really came down to were the fundamentals of the country. I mean, you can really explain most of the variation by the fact that people, you know, felt positive about the fact that we had improved from 2009 mm-hmm. um, as a country and that they generally liked Barack Obama better than they liked Mitt Romney and that you could explain okay. most of the the sort of the variation of the vote that way uh, or put differently the fundamentals of the country which we just talked about um, suggested Obama should win a narrow victory and in fact he did right yep. um, so yeah I mean you can make the case that Obama was stronger I think certainly in 2008 he you know was incredibly I mean his campaign was just uh, incredibly stronger than John McCain um, at pretty much every level but in 2012, I think it's a little bit, a little bit closer. Okay, that's a, that's um, that's a really good thought. That's so, really interesting. Oh um, four for sure. I mean, I think Bush had a better, you know, he did a better job turning out his base than Kerry, and so that yes. that was a big, big factor. And he had the advantage of incumbency, which usually doesn't hurt. <laughs> One of the things that's interesting to think about, though, is you know, when, as <clears throat> and and this gets to sort of the the question in, in in American politics scholarship, and that is, what would happen if the candidates didn't campaign? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, we used what, to do this, by the way, in the 19th century. Well, yeah, <laughs> but you know, so 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 you know, the question looking now is, you know, what if what if they, you know, what if basically we had Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, neither of them did anything for the last year and a half mm. or whatever. We call, that the, we call that the Fred Thompson now. Right, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you know, they, they were just Fred Thompson. They released one nine-minute, you know, TV spot. And yeah, that was it, you know, yeah. And uh, <clears throat> or was this like a 30-minute TV spot? I can't remember how long it was. Oh, now. It was so Fred Thompson. <laughs> if, you, if you're not familiar, what we're talking about Fred Thompson's a former Hollywood actor. Uh, was on Law and Order for many years, but um, a senator from Tennessee. Sen- for a while. A senator from Tennessee—that's far more important to this, to this <laughs> yeah. conversation. He wasn't just a TV star, <laughs> but he ran for president. Possibly one of the worst campaigns. You know, you know, he ran out of primaries. <laughs> this was in two thousand eight. Two thousand eight. Possibly one of the worst campaigns yeah. ever run in modern history. Uh, he was—he was older, but uh, but had was very uncommitted to actually campaigning. Yeah. He released a couple TV yeah. spots, but. Never made a bunch of campaign appearances. Never actually yeah. tried to raise money or tried to actually meet the voters, as it turns yeah. out. Right. And yeah. um, his campaign fizzled. He kind of got persuaded that he should run. It was a good opportunity or something. I don't know. Yeah. But he he just didn't seem to have his heart in it yeah. at all. Yeah. But anyway, so the so the question is, you know, what what would happen if neither of the candidates did anything? And I yeah. think I think that's. In a sense, well, we're not we're not getting obviously a pure experiment, but we're right. sort of seeing a natural experiment here to see, um, you know, what what happens when one candidate really doesn't do a lot of the things that we normally yeah. think a campaign yeah. should do, yeah. um, and does that does that actually make a difference? And so, you know, so in some ways, this is yeah. going to be um, a fascinating thing to watch here in the next few days. And you know, when we're talking about ground game, I just wanted to sort of talk about that for just a little bit. What we're sure. what we're what we're talking about here is the campaigns. You know, their fundamental goal is to get people to the to the polls. You know. That's right. why they're releasing the ads. That's why they release issue positions. They're trying to get people to want to go out and vote for them. That's why mm-hmm. they hold the rallies so that they can try to get you fired up and get your neighbors fired up and all those things. Right. Um, so they do all those things. But then at, on the day of the election as well, what uh, election what uh, campaigns will do is, especially in populous areas, is they will try to get people to actually physically drive people to the polls, to actually mm-hmm. go knock on yep. doors and say, hi, do you need a ride to the polls? <laughs> Um, and a lot of times the parties have actually prepared lists, like they know which households um, or people will, um, you know, actually probably support them, um, you know, which right. neighborhoods are likely to have people that will support them. And they will only go to those areas and say, mm-hmm. hey, would you like a ride um, to the polls? And people will, you know, they'll actually try to get people to the polls. And, of course, this also means manning phone banks. So they'll just have, you know, thousands right. of volunteers who are, um, you know, at phones just 
calling people, trying to get them to go to the polls and all those sorts of things. And, uh, you know, it looks like Hillary Clinton is really geared up to do this. Mm -hmm. Like she's Mm -hmm. got a great, you know, organization ready to go uh, and is already going, right, trying to get people to early polling. Um, And Donald Trump has just really not cared about these sorts of things. Right. Right? Which is is not just him necessarily being lackadaisical. I mean, that's, that's one interpretation. <laughs> yeah, that is. But, um, but I think it's also the idea that he are, he's perhaps believes, and his campaign believes, that this is just not as important as the Clinton campaign thinks mm-hmm. it is. Yeah. And the strength of his personality yeah. and his ability to be on uh, network and television right. um, is going to have more of an impact in the, in the latter days uh, than this ground game stuff is. Right. Yeah. And, and the other thing is he is, I mean, it, he isn't, it's not like there is no ground game. What he's doing essentially is he's leaning on um, the uh, Republican Party um, to do this organization for him, right? So, so Hillary Clinton certainly, obviously, is the Democratic Party working for her. He's saying, I mean, you know, Republican Party, you can do all this, um, but I'm not building up my own infrastructure. So there will be some of this going on in the Republican campaign, but um, what you're not going to get is sort of this separate uh, presidential campaign effort. And so, in theory, again, that should advantage Hillary Clinton on Election Day, but we will see. We've, we've talked about money and politics, too, and in some ways this is uh – this is where this comes into play as well. Mm-hmm. At the, I saw, I heard a report over the weekend that Donald Trump has about sixteen million dollars in the bank um, for his campaign, which sounds like a lot of money until you hear that Clinton has about five times as much money in the bank right, right now. Sixteen is that much. Um, and yeah. so, what that money gets used for in the last week of the campaign is essentially paying all these people, paying them to work phone banks, paying them mm-hmm. to, to mm-hmm. take drivers, paying them to um, right. to go door knock, and those sorts of yeah. things are how a campaign spends its money. They're not so. There might be some late ad buys. But this is, I, and by the way, we're, we're here in Minnesota, not a swing state, not, not a battleground <laughs> state. I finally saw some of my first uh, Clinton and Trump ads on TV. Now, admittedly, I don't watch a lot of TV with commercials in it, um, but uh, but I did see a few um, finally. So, um, well, gentlemen, um, I, I want to introduce one other thing here because if, I, I imagine if you're anything like me, I have my poli sci heroes. Do you have like poly, do you have poli sci like academic heroes, people whose work you really admire? Yeah, Just trying I, to think I who do. I, I have like name. I have my own little Mount Rushmore political scientists, okay. and you're these right, names are going to mean nothing to anybody other than other political scientists. Okay, we but, should keep this short, is what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but one of the people on my on my list of my, my Mount Rushmore of political scientists is a guy named Charles Tilly. And, oh, yeah. and, and because Andy's comparative, he's nodding. Because mm-hmm. Mitch is familiar with this work, he's nodding too. So, uh, Charles Tilly has done a lot of work on social movement theory mm-hmm. and how groups of people become mobilized. Right. And I actually think this, this is a useful way of conceptualizing a campaign. Uh, Tilly says that there are certain kinds of, of nodes, certain kinds of things that can get activated mm-hmm. on a social movement. And once you have enough of these activated, mm-hmm. then that actually propels a social movement forward and you can give it life and give it energy. And, we, and basically, these things are the things we've been talking about with a campaign. Mm-hmm. You need a set mm-hmm. of ideas, although... Tilly says those aren't necessarily particularly important. Um, <laughs> what you need, though, are resources, and resources right. is the, in this case right. is money. Mm-hmm. But you also mm-hmm. need a population. A people is are a resource as well. And then you need mm-hmm. some kind of, 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 of challenge or opposition, which, which fuels people. In this case, the opposition is, is baked in because we have a competitive election process. Right. And so in a sense, I think what we, can, we can conceptualize campaigns as a, um, as a short-term based social movement. We often have heard politicians, too, talk about turning their campaign, often when it's unsuffocial, into a movement. So Bernie yeah. Sanders says, you know, I, wasn't, I, was, I didn't win the nomination for the Democratic Party, but I'm starting a movement. Mm-hmm. Does, is there any purchase <laughs> in this? Do, do uh, candidates who have run for president unsuccessfully, do they continue to have influence? Do they continue to, be, to sort of foster a movement after they've retired from the scene? 
I'm unconvinced. <laughs> okay. I mean, I think they, they want to believe that. And, yeah, I just – I'm trying to think of recent examples of people who have tried to sort of make these kind of movement claims. I, I can't think I of a know. super recent example, yeah. although George McGovern might actually have yeah. some, at some oh. level. Because he, he, he actually in many ways like reformed mm-hmm. the Democratic Party. Yeah. After, after uh, you know, the 1970s, he was really instrumental in – Basically, reforming the way the Democratic Party ran their primaries yeah. and their organization and things like that. So, I think I think he could make a credible claim to say that he actually um, had some at some level a movement, um, even though he mm-hmm. uh, you know was an mm-hmm. unsuccessful candidate. Yeah, yeah, well, I think that's fair. But I can, I'm trying to think of anybody more recent than that. Let me, let me, let me play devil's advocate. Though. Couldn't we imagine if he loses the election, Donald Trump, um, because of his fame, because of his wealth, because of his celebrity? Um, starting an alternative to Fox News and becoming a central sure. figure in an alternative American conservatism, or I maybe mean, conservatism. Is not I don't think we want to use the word conservatism, but yeah. alternative <laughs> American opposition to a Hillary yeah. Clinton presidency. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely. Yeah. I, I, th- I think that's I think definitely possible. possible. Um, I think the question is going to be how Trump handles that. Um, mm. You know, if, whether whether Trump, uh, you know, is is uh, is is able to successfully communicate in opposition. Yeah, you know, and I think yeah. that's going to be the the real question is whether he can be you know disciplined enough to actually be able to uh, coherently talk about these things afterwards. You know, one one of the people that I kind of uh, think this might look like uh, mm-hmm. might be someone like Sarah Palin. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. Sarah Palin kind of activated in many ways the same uh, type of voters that that, uh, that Donald Trump has activated. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And 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 in some ways she's still a figure, right? So you know mm-hmm. she she still makes a lot of appearances at places like the NRA. Um, she so she's no longer a commentator on Fox News. Right. Yeah. She she's no longer there, and she's basically in some ways at this point has kind of um, you know petered out. Right. Basically, she right. she doesn't have a coherent set of ideas and principles mm-hmm. and things like that mm-hmm. that she could bring forward and so it's basically it's done right i mm-hmm. mean she's we've you know we've heard her you know kind of ramble on about um all sorts of things several times and there's just you know people have kind of decided there's not enough there to, to pay attention to and i, I, I kind of wonder but if that trump might not be the, the same, same for trump though i don't know i see i mean uh, you know trump is so yeah. he's entertaining he is entertaining that's true although arguably sarah palin was entertaining enough to get a Reality show too for oh, a while. But I think he's. So. I think he's a, a <laughs> yeah. far more impressive screen presence than she is. I think so too. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, like, and I, you know, I mean, I can be very critical of Donald Trump, but I think he is. Um, he is able to be a little bit more coherent than Sarah Palin, <laughs> particularly like sort of Sarah Palin of recent vintage. I mean, Sarah Palin '08 was more so. I thought the last two years when I've heard her at all, it's just like, what on earth are you even talking <laughs> about? Right. So I think Trump can, um, if if he could, if he stays interested. In it, I think this is a possibility. What I'm less convinced about, I guess, is that you know, if Trump loses this this presidential election, um, that he would really care enough to do that. Like that, he really want. Does he want to spend the next years of his life? I mean, you know, he's, this is an old guy. I mean, he's you know 70 years old. Is that really what he wants to do with himself for the next few years? Maybe. Um, or he might just want to go pursue more real estate deals. I mean, I'm just not yeah. sold on the fact that he wants. I to I don't think he can give this up completely, that. Andy. I mean, like but, the Twitter. Oh, he doesn't give it up completely. Far from Twitter. No, um, no, he'll I keep know. tweeting. He'll keep sniping from the side. I'm just not sure. Does he want to like? Create an organizing, organized organizing an opposition right. movement, um, yeah. and sort of constantly be doing that, or does he just want to sort of um, snipe when he feels like it, right? And those are those are kind of different strategies. One puts you sort of at the center of the the opposition narrative, and one kind of puts you on the edges of it. And and I'm I'm not sure which one he'll he'll do. And, and I actually think you know just you know because he hasn't. 
put much of an organization together for this campaign. It, you know, it's hard to see him deciding to do that after the right. campaign. And I, and I, and <laughs> exactly. I think the and I think the other thing, just building off Andy's, actually, I actually uh, considered this too much until I started hearing Andy talk there. But um, one of the things to think about too is, you know, Donald Trump wants to be a winner. Yeah. And it's yeah. hard to see him wanting to constantly live in the fact that he was the losing presidential right. candidate. Right. You know, is he going to constantly right. want to be on Fox News or CNN or whatever? As well, here's Donald Trump who lost the 2016 <laughs> presidential election. Yeah, is that going to want to be the person that he is going to want to be year for you know for the next five ten years or whatever? Right. The person who lost right. a presidential election. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good point. That's yeah. a really good point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I guess the, the one other thing is, I mean, is there any chance if he loses, does he want to come back in 2020 and try this again? Right. And Oof. if he does, then he has to organize the opposition. Right. That's true. Um, I mean, he's he's very old for that, and I I don't. I don't know. It's hard to see the Republican Party giving him another shot. But uh, we don't usually give any losing candidates a second chance. Um, and he seems like a, a less probable. Not in the modern era. Um, not in the modern era, right. Yeah. Back in the day we did. Yeah. Um, but it's been a long time since a, a person who lost after having gotten the nomination got, gets another chance. Um, so, yeah, it seems unlikely. But, again, who knows? I mean, Donald Trump's been very unpredictable, so I don't want to say he won't <laughs> do it. Uh, I think that for the reasons Mitch outlined, it's probably less likely. Um. Well, I can't let uh, our discussion of the campaign ideas go without talking a little bit about the power structure here. So we have a couple, um, um, a couple common, uh, a couple common ways of conceptualizing the campaigns is that they're simply extensions of the political parties who are putting them on, mm-hmm. and that the candidate is the most important face of the campaign. And from that, and that that's true, but it's also a little bit simplistic. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about the. The, the relationship between the campaigns and the parties themselves, because they right. are separate, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yes, for sure. Yep. This actually leads to a question that, and I, I, I got permission to give credit to her. So um, um, your boss and my boss and our boss's <laughs> boss's boss, uh, Deb Harless, the provost here at Bethel University, asked me uh, at a meeting yesterday, she said, what's the relationship of the leader of the party? And I said, do you mean like the president or the, or the mm-hmm. candidate? She said, no, no, no. Like, who's actually in charge of, of the party? <laughs> mm-hmm. And I said, that's a really good question. Mm-hmm. Uh, both of the parties have... Uh, campaign chairs, uh, they're, or I mean, they're not campaign chairs. They're, there's chairs of the party campaign, chairs, yeah. but they're also party chairs, and these are Ooh. different people. So let's start with okay. the party chairs. Who's in charge of the Democratic Party? Mitch. Well, <laughs> <laughs> um, it was uh, it was it was uh, Debbie uh, Wasserman Schultz, and I actually yep. cannot remember the person we just. Well, this is oh, really interesting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's Donna. It's Donna Brazile. Oh, that's right. Yeah, but she's the, the interim inter- chair. She's the interim right. chair of the Democratic yep. Party. You may also recognize Donna Brazile because she's a car- she's a commentator on CNN. They, CNN. Well, she was because <laughs> just a couple just days fired. ago, CNN parted ways with right. her. I.e., she was fired yes. um, because uh, emails disclosed in the Hillary Clinton uh, email scandal have shown that Donna Brazile was feeding questions during the Democratic primary to the Clinton campaign. So questions are going to be asked in CNN uh, forums. Uh, the candidates yeah. weren't supposed to know. Clinton found out about because Donna Brazile told her. And this shouldn't surprise us. No. She's the chair of the Democratic Party. <laughs> uh, she wants Hillary Clinton to win. And so she's she's feeding her questions from her role as a CNN commentator. Mm-hmm. So that's 
that's it. So that that gets that loses her her job as CNN, but that doesn't lose her her job as the Democratic Party uh, interim chair. She's the interim chair because Desi, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, the previous Democratic Party chair, uh, was re- was re- resigned from that position after criticisms that she was attempting to swing the primary away from Bernie Sanders and towards Hillary Clinton. Which was because again, of true. course, she was right. <laughs> yeah, that the institutional structures of the Democratic Party wanted Hillary Clinton to win the nomination. They right, did right. not want Bernie Sanders to give her a substantive challenge. Right. Um, okay. That sounds fairly sorted. Who is the chair <laughs> of the Republican Party? This one is Reince Priebus. Reince Priebus, who um, as a, I don't know any other Reinces in, nope. in, nope. in, the, in, in the universe. Um, sort of sounds like a, like a character from you know, a Grimm's fairy tale sort of thing. Yeah. Um, kind of is. Reince Priebus wandered you know, into the woods or something <laughs> uh, and found the, found the witch. Um, but, okay, so um, these people are in charge of organizing the party. What kind of power do they have? I think one of the things to think about when we look at the power they have is it's actually pretty limited. Very, um, yeah. yeah, and so, you know, so I think getting back to the actual question, you know, who's in charge of the party? I mean, the question is, you know, in, in some ways it's sort of um, – I think it mischaracterizes what political parties yeah. are, actually. Yeah. And so maybe maybe we should just talk about what political parties are for two seconds. Mm. Um, when we think about political parties, they're basically like two. They're, they're basically three different parts to political parties, um, and there are three different. And, and then there and then this like split up into a bunch of different levels. Right. So first of all, when we think about political parties, we have to realize that there's a national, state, and local levels of political parties, and they don't necessarily all go along with each other. I mean, we've no. seen that True. repeatedly with the Republican Party here, right, where we have like the Ohio chairman of the Republican Party for Ohio not supporting Donald Trump anymore. And so, you know, so the Ohio Republican Party kind of officially isn't with Donald Trump, you know, at sort of. At the highest level, too. At the highest Uh, level, yeah. Governor John Kasich, who has made no bones about his distaste for Donald Trump, wrote in John McCain on his ballot when he voted early. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, so, so we have different levels. So, you know, it's not that, you know, it's not like... Uh, you know, these chairmen of the parties are actually in charge of these other lower levels. Right. Um, and then uh, not only do you have the different levels, but you also, also have three different parts. So there's like there's party in government, you know, yes. the political mm-hmm. science terms here, you know. So <laughs> these are people like, you know, these are people like the folks in the House, like, you know, Paul Ryan and, yep. um, you know, Nancy Pelosi and, you know, Barack Obama and all of those people. You know, they're they're all in. You know, they're the party. They're holding elected office. Right. They're holding elected office. Um, And then you have the party organization, which is what we've kind of been talking about here. Right. Right. Which is the people who try to raise some money, get some, you know, organization in terms of ground game and all that stuff. Um, And then you have party in the electorate. And those are just, Mm. you know, people, regular people like you and I who identify as I'm a Republican. I'm a Democrat. I'm a, you know, libertarian, Green Party, whatever. Sure. Um, And the thing to keep in mind is these three different parts None of them can, you know, necessarily really, you know, they all kind of loosely hang together and they intersect at different times. Like we have the primaries where, you know, the party and the electorate kind of gets to decide who the nominees will be. But, you know, they don't really control each other. Right. Right. They really are separate things. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the party and government can basically say to the party organization, we don't care what you want us to do. You know, we will do what we want. They do that. I mean, Donald Trump has run away from the Republican Party uh, establishment in his campaign. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, so, so, so when we look at this and we say, well, who's in charge of the party? I mean, in some ways it's sort of a terrifying answer just to say, well, nobody, (laughs) you know, nobody is in charge of the party. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, these things are, you know, they're much larger than any individual person or even, you know, any individual organization or group, you know, Mm -hmm. the parties, uh, you know, they exist in individual, 
know, as you know, as Chris was kind of outlining before, you know, there there's sort of a movement aspect to it, which is much more decentralized. And then there, yep. but then there are the organizations, but even the organizations are somewhat decentralized. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you have government, as we know about American government, it's also mm-hmm. you know federal mm-hmm. and decentralized, and so it's very loose. You know how mm-hmm. the you know all these aspects play together when we think about political parties. Yeah, and so to get back to Deb's question, too, I mean, I think as we kind of think about all this together, I mean, it's it's surprisingly complicated to a- answer the question, sort of, who is the leader of the party? In one sense, as Mitch pointed out, no one, right? There's no <laughs> one person who's kind of got control of all these different aspects of the party and different sort of manifestations of the party. Um, on the other hand, I mean, the obvious answer is the party chair has obviously got a important role, but is in par- charge of a large national committee, um, which then has all these state committees, which don't necessarily fall into line. Um, the other answer, though, the other way you could think about it is the, the leader of the party is really the most um, prominent elected official, right? And so for the Democrats, obviously, right now, that would be President Barack Obama, and we're in a stage of sort of kind of sort of transitioning to Hillary Clinton. Sure. For the Republicans, it's kind of Donald Trump who's their current nominee. Um, for a while, you could Ryan. make a case for Mitt Romney as a former um, presidential nominee, but then Paul Ryan, yeah, is mm-hmm. the highest elected official, mm-hmm. um, is also kind of the voice of the party, right? Which is why, you know, these conflicts between Ryan Mitch and... Mitch McConnell? Um, yeah, yeah, but um, Speaker of the House is just generally seen as a more prominent position Absolutely. than um, yeah. Senate Majority Leader. They have a lot more power. Um, they, they do, and so, or at least they traditionally have. I don't know if <laughs> in the recent House it feels like they've been <laughs> yanked around a lot more, but uh, it, in theory, at least, they have, have more power than the the Senate Majority Leader. Um, and frankly, if you're the Republicans, you'd rather have Ryan out there speaking to the press than Mitch McConnell. Uh, McConnell is not sort of your, your best front man. Um, he's very good at Senate rules and trying to work behind the scenes. He's not incredibly good in front of cameras. Um, so yep. so I think it's, you know, the question of who the party leader is, is um, there's several different answers you could give. And the, the and, short and, version is none of them like really they're all pretty right. So, so, yeah, they are all partly right, right? They are all mm-hmm. sort of um, – and, and this points to the fact that, I mean, our parties are – you know, th- these are big tent parties. There's a lot going on there, and they're not sort of unified organizations that act in concert. I mean, the Republican Party in from state to state, or the Democratic Party from state to state, varies pretty wildly, right? I mean, so I mean, I I, I am from South Carolina originally, in the United States. Um, the Republican or the Democratic Party in South Carolina is way more conservative, right, in terms of its political positions than the Democratic Farmer Labor, Labor Party, which is the manifestation of the Democratic Party in Minnesota, right, um, and looks very different than the Texas Democratic Party or the Kentucky Democratic Party. So, you know, there's just a lot of, of, of that variation. Um, one kind of random sort of story about this just to illustrate sort of how our party is so different, right? Sure. So in the 70s, um, George um, H.W. Uh, Bush, the first George Bush, was named chair of the Republican Party. He had been um, ambassador to the U.N. previously. And so some mm-hmm. of his sort of and Ambassador people, of China. Too. Yeah, ambassador of China after that, right? So he um, – he, some of his colleagues at the UN were congratulating him, right, on this becoming party chair. Like, this is such a powerful and important position from their view, because especially his communist colleagues in the UN were like, wow, <laughs> you are party chair. You have made it, right? Um, because they viewed it as like, I mean, this was often the position of most political power in a lot of communist countries, the general secretary of the party, right? Mm. And it's like, wow, you're one of the, you're the chair of one of the two major parties you've really attained, right? And, of course, the reality was completely the opposite. George H.W. Bush now had to try to sort of manage these many competing demands, um, and he was a figure with sort of relatively little actual power. Right. Um, but it, it points to sort of the very different perception you have uh, from country to country about sort of you know, how, how powerful are these party officials. Good point. That's a really yeah. good point. Well, we have a couple other things that I'd love to talk about. Um, I, can't, I can't pass this up. Um, 
Andy, you mentioned this before we started recording. Um, in a more recent poll, you know, we've been polling uh, people oh, yeah. on how, how, how likely they are to vote for certain candidates. But we still ask other questions, too. And one of the questions we've been focusing on this election is trustworthiness. Mm-hmm. Um, this makes sense given this makes sense in one way and, it makes, and, and doesn't in another. In a more recent poll, Trump was viewed as more trustworthy than Clinton by eight points. Yep. What was the what was the do you remember what the bar the absolute amount was here? How trustworthy are both of these candidates viewed? I think it was just a comparative one. I don't remember the exact details, but I think okay. it was just so comparing who you, like who so do you view as more trustworthy, trustworthy between okay, okay. So Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton? Trustworthy? Who's more trustworthy? I believe I believe that's the case. I think it was just a comparison question. And then, of course, I mean, obviously, this is partly following on the renewed FBI investigation as of last week, right? So this came out since then. Um, so. You, so Going back to one of our previous to your previous point that perhaps we can ignore a lot of factors about candidates and simply look at how likable they are mm-hmm. as one of those major mm-hmm. determining factors. How closely connected is trustworthiness to likability? Hmm, that's a good question. I, I don't I don't have any numbers on that. Yeah, I wouldn't. I'm, I'm not sure. Although I imagine that they're pretty closely linked. I would think that I think that likability probably strongly influences trustworthiness. Yeah. There's there are, there are very few people that yeah. we would say, oh, I really I find them really likable, and yet they're not particularly trustworthy. Um, lovable rogues kinds right. of things, uh, right. but we typically don't elect lovable rogues as right. president. Um, I wonder if this is if this will be if this is an artifact of the email release, the, rene- yeah. the James yeah. Comey's re- uh, renewing of the email investigation, or if this is something more durable. Mm-hmm. And if it's something that's that you know that there's sort of a long-term perception that Clinton is is, is untrustworthy, um, if this is depressing her polling numbers otherwise, right. um, both these candidates have given us ample reason to suspect that they are not particularly trustworthy. Correct um, in this election process. So, um, okay, last uh, last bit of, of business I think we need to talk about is um, uh, uh, Andy. You mentioned um, uh, split-ticket voting um, and. In the United States, we have mm-hmm. uh, many people who vote split ticket. You vote for Republican or Democrat at the top of the ticket, and then the different uh, people for different parties at the uh, lower down. And we have a couple different uh, candidates who uh, for Senate who are running ahead of their presidential candidates, mm-hmm. and some who are running behind. Um, what explains this? Um, so I well, it, it, I think a lot of it just comes down to um, sort of the quality of different candidates, right? And so I think you know it, this does remind us that. Um, that so how good the people are you have running for office does matter. Um, so it's not just about the party, not just about the campaign. It's not just about the party. People don't, don't just vote generically. And um, sort of to this famous Tip O'Neill dictum, right? I mean, all politics is local. I don't think that's quite true, but at least some of politics is local, right? And so it matters whether you have done a good job of maintaining ties with your constituency um, and whether they they generally like you. I mean, again, likability kind of comes into play here. So, for example, I mean, one of the places where we see a, we're see, right now at least seeing a very big gap in the polls, and we'll see how it turns out on Tuesday, um, between the presidential candidate and the, the Senate candidate is Missouri, right? Where oh, yeah. um, the Republican Senate candidate, um, Roy Blunt, is who's the, the incumbent senator, is running significantly behind Donald Trump in the polls. Um, so a lot of Missourians are apparently thinking of voting for Donald Trump and voting for the Democratic Senate candidate, Jason Kander, who's a, a war veteran, um, who's done a very good job of appealing to sort of the traditional Missouri vote. That's um, sort of like fascinating. He had, you know, he had this great ad where he assembled a um, gun sort of blindfolded, right, while talking about why he supports <laughs> gun control, right? I mean, so it's, um, you know, this resonated with people in Missouri, right? I mean, so, so, so he's a good candidate. Is it the fact that he's doing well or that Blunt is doing poorly? 
Or it's, both? it's both, I think. Okay. I think Blunt has been an underwhelming candidate. Candor's um, younger; he's more dynamic, um, and I think so. I think you know, Candor has been a very good candidate. He's the exact kind of person that you would want to run in a state like Missouri if you're a Democrat, which is you know again the party that you know, does not usually dominate in national elections in Missouri. Um, and Blunt is kind of weaker, right? Um, now, Blunt might still win because Missouri is, I think, going to lean Republican, and, and I think the polls are pretty even. But the point is it's it's competitive, right? Sure. Um, and, you know, you get states like New Hampshire where um, Kelly Ayotte is the incumbent senator. People have voted mm-hmm. for her before. They kind of like her. Um, but Hillary Clinton's winning that state, right? So Hillary looks like she's you know likely to win New Hampshire, but the Senate race is pretty competitive with maybe even a slight edge to um, Ayotte. So, you know, yeah. again, I think, you know, she's running against a good candidate, too. I mean, New Hampshire's elected Maggie Hassan, the Democratic candidate, as their governor before, um, so they like her too. But you know, it does seem like they are slightly leaning in the other direction. So it's I, I do think candidate quality matters. Um, how well you've done maintaining uh, sort of your fences back home, if you will. Um, okay, so in. Missouri, New Hampshire, are there other uh, Senate races that we should particularly be paying attention to as we move close to election day here? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, Nevada is an open seat, um, and that's pretty competitive. There's been the polling is kind of all over, and Nevada is a hard state to poll um, for a variety of reasons, especially having to do with sort of like when you can get a hold of casino workers and stuff like that. Um, <laughs> I mean, seriously, like you know, there's an, it's enough of a thing in that state that it really impacts the accuracy of polling. So the polling has been kind of all over with the, the two Senate candidates, and open seats are always interesting. Um, Indiana is interesting. You have a former senator coming back trying to run, but he hasn't been in Indiana. He was very popular, but he hasn't been there for a while, so he's trying to run the Democratic side. But Trump, you were talking about this race earlier. Yeah, yeah. And Trump should win that state. I mean, he's probably going to win pretty big. And so the question is, can Evan Bay sort of swim against the tide there and, mm-hmm. and win as a Democrat? Um, so that's another one I'll watch closely. Um, Pennsylvania, Illinois, and Wisconsin, you have Republican senators who are running for re-election, all of whom look like they're swimming against the tide um, and probably are likely to lose. Okay. Um, One of the things that's interesting about that, too, is you know we're talking about these incumbents who can potentially lose, and that's actually very mm-hmm. rare mm-hmm. in American politics. Yeah. One of the things yeah. to, to remember is, uh, at least for the Senate, um, uh, somewhere in the vicinity of, uh, of 83% of incumbent senators win re-election. Right. So it's very rare for, for, for senators to lose. It's, a, it's even rare for incumbent House members to lose. Um, but um, but to see you know this number of senators actually under threat is yeah. actually... Um, Telling perhaps right. about uh, about the perception of the Senate and where um, where the American people are on on those things. Yeah, and it has something to do with I mean, the fact that a lot of you, you got a lot of Republicans winning in 2010 as part of that um, you know very very strong Republican year reaction against Obama. So they were winning in places where Republicans right. often don't win. Yeah. Um, so that was at least part of it too. Yeah, and one of the other things I think was interesting about this, you know, when we think about split ticket voting. Um, is this is this is sort of an artifact of. Uh, somewhat recent American electoral reform, basically mm-hmm. in the last hundred years or so. You know, it used to be the case back at the founding that basically if you were going to vote, you actually like basically got up on a stage and announced your vote with your right. voice. Right. Like you had a voice vote. Um, so you had to be willing to just, you know, be be very public in your vote. And then once you got to, um, you know, the turn of the century, then you had basically party ballots where you would go in, um, party bosses would hand you a party ballot and you would just vote, you know, I'm voting for all the Republicans or all the Democrats. Right. Right. Um, and then it's been only in the last hundred years where we've gone right. to, you know, uh, basically an Australian ballot where you have all the candidates listed and you can mm-hmm. choose. Mm-hmm. So, um in some ways, when we when we think about split ticket voting, this is in some ways even that's a new phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, five thirty eight, we mentioned they have uh, Clinton at a sixty seven percent chance of winning the presidency. They've got Democrats at a sixty three percent chance of taking back the House. 
They're not quite the same. Senate, you mean? I'm Senate. Excuse me. Uh, uh, Republicans will almost certainly retain the House. Um, uh, But but Democrats might have a 63% chance of taking the Senate. And those numbers track pretty closely with Clinton's poll numbers, too, although they're not perfect. So the campaign does matter. The party Mm -hmm. does matter. But I think the individual candidates matter, too. And that's one of the conclusions I think I've come out of this conversation with. Yeah. Um, I, there's so much more we have to talk about, but I have to make a couple announcements before we end. Yes. Uh, please do email us with your questions at electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Also, if you're listening to us and you haven't yet, please take a moment, uh, rate us on iTunes. That helps other people find us. Um, you can also uh, tell your friends to just Google election shock therapy. We're the first result that comes up. We made Woo-hoo. it top of Google boys. All right. Um, and, uh, also please join us at, um, electionprojection.com. This is not our site, but this is a no. website we're using to see who is the best prognosticator of the presidential election uh, form a uh, create, create a username start your username with EST16 mm-hmm. um, and then whatever you want to call it after that and compete with us to see how you're doing uh, picking the presidency I've got my predictions up I, do you guys have yours up I do although I'm reserving the right to modify you, you might you might monkey with it all right all I'm right not, I may not be done Okay. Um, uh, so go do those things. Subscribe, rate us, email, uh, email us, uh, predict, predict with us, and look for us to show up on Election Day in your, in your podcast feed as well. I think we're going to have to do some oh, yeah. live things on, on Election Day. So thank you all so much for listening. On behalf of my colleagues and I, this is Chris Moore. You're listening to Election Shock Therapy, and go Royals. Go Royals.